Hi everybody, welcome back to Iroquois History and Legends. I'm Caleb. And I'm Andrew. And welcome to episode 5, Hunting and Fishing. Now, we originally recorded uh, this as part of the Three Sisters, episode 4, and we tried to cover everything, gathering, hunting, fishing, and agriculture. And before we uh, realized it, we had a podcast that was over two hours long. Yeah, and we're not hardcore history, nor do we claim to be. Yes, we are, are definitely not hardcore history as far as length of our podcast, nor quality of our podcast. <laughs> we're, we're aspiring to be. But anyway, enough about that. So uh, we thought that we would just uh, split into two episodes and then we can take a week off. Yes, taking a week off is very good, especially when it people think they're getting an extra episode, when in reality, guys, you just got an episode split in half. Yep. So should we get started, Caleb? You want to go into fishing or hunting? What's the plan? No plan. Okay, let's, let's, let's talk about hunting. Uh, this is fun stuff, and I, being a hunter, can relate a lot more to this than I can their old ways of agriculture and and when I read about them I, I see all these things and and think about the practicality of it and try to learn something cool from it but they hunted all hunted and trapped all sorts of different animals a lot of our listeners are from the northeast but for those of you that aren't I'll kind of run down what animals we had have here and had here their their main source of meat was white-tailed deer and I can't remember if we covered this in another episode, but the main reason why there was such big whitetail population is because deer are not a deep woods animal. They love living right on the edge of fields and trees. And so because of the mass burnings and the fields and the way they would tear the bark off of the trees, it would create all of this you know, open area that the, the whitetail really thrived in. So this became their main thing to hunt. But on top of whitetail... They, there was also elk here at the time. There no longer is, but they found from excavating sites that there were elk bones. So it most likely they would come across an elk doing a whitetail drive and take it as an opportunity because they were still somewhat rare even back then. And uh, black bear. So these were the three big animals that they hunted, the black bear, the elk, and the white-tailed deer. But there were all sorts of various younger animals um, for example, uh, ducks and turkeys, woodchucks, porcupines, beavers, frogs, and uh, another one that you may have heard of, the passenger pigeon. I have heard of the passenger pigeon, Caleb. Now, where can I find one of those? Well, uh, if you go out and you go in the back lawn, take a pair of binoculars, and if you watch, you're, you'll see one in, in a couple hours, I'm sure. No. <laughs> yeah, no, the, I the, won't. The passenger pigeon was the largest flock. I think they said in weight volume it was the largest land living creature as far as mass in the world. There were millions and millions and millions of them in flocks, and they said that it blotted out the sky. Yeah, I think when I they read traveled. that they believed that when their their flocks were at their biggest, it was something like fifteen billion birds. Unbelievable, and they're all gone. So the passenger pigeons are all gone. They went extinct in the mid-1800s. Yeah, they think the last ones may be early, early 1900s. Okay. But the flocks the, were gone. Yeah. And, and they, were, they were driven to extinction by uh, the white settlers mass hunting them. And uh, the reason that they didn't go extinct with the natives here, though, I'm not sure if you read about this, Andrew, uh, but they had a system for gathering 
the passenger pigeon. Did you know that? What they did when when they would all come in and and lay their eggs and then grow, they would shake the young birds out with uh, long poles, and uh-huh. they would only harvest the young birds right before they were able to fly, and they would leave all the adult birds to reproduce and come back every year. So it's just interesting that they had the insight to not waste the adult birds, get the young ones right before they can fly. We have a nice, young, tender bird. You know, I'm not talking like babies right when they hatch. I mean, they're fully feathered and, and starting to fly. But, you know, you've seen the robins when, they, when they're just getting ready to fly and they're kind of bouncing along the lawn, half flying. That's when they would gather them. Mm-hmm. There's another legend, maybe we'll do it sometime, about the story of why an Indian doesn't shoot a pigeon. Oh, really? There's a story, but we can't get into it now. So moving on. So moving on, that's the passenger pigeon. Uh, Lots of these animals had all sorts of different uses on top of just meat and fur. For example, like the porcupines, they could use those for basically kind of like knitting your your fishnets and things like that. You could use the needles for all sorts of of cool things. Uh, Also, they had wolves here and coyotes. And they also had long-bodied animals, what they called like the, the cougar and the fisher, which is a weasel. And uh, they kind of had a, a spiritual belief that separated long-body animals. Did you know that? No. They kind of looked at them, I believe, like they were, like they were bad luck uh, or, or mischievous animals. So they kind of ha- held them in separate regard. Um, but let's, let's talk about the different types of deer hunting. Because, because this is like their main source of meat and things like that, I think we should dedicate a lot of this time to deer hunting, and then if we have time, we can move to the, some of the other things. Uh, yeah, so we had mentioned before that a lot of times you think of, in the movies, a solitary deer hunter walking around with a bow and arrow and silently stalking a deer. They kind of did some of that, but generally speaking, not the way we see it in the movies, right, Caleb? Uh, that's true. I mean, we could talk about that a little bit. The The majority of their their hunts where they actually took large amounts of deer were, were in their drives, but they did, on occasion, you know, somebody would go out and try and stalk a deer and hunt it down, and they but, did have some cool techniques in yeah, doing that. Yeah, like, um, what did they wear? Uh, they would actually dress up, I think even with the antlers, they would actually yes. put on... The, a deer pelt with the stuffed head uh-huh. and, and you know, stalked through the woods. And when the deer looked at them, they'd get down on all fours. And uh, Yeah, if you've ever taken a hunter safety course, you know that is one of the dumbest. <laughs> I'm talking about today. That's one of the dumbest things you can do because you're dressed like a deer prancing yeah. about. You get shot with a rifle. Yeah, you don't but, have yahoos with, with rifles shooting anything that moves back then. So. No, fortunately, <laughs> they identified their prey. And the target beyond. Mm-hmm. But yeah, they would sneak up on them dressed as another deer. It's just... <laughs> and and also, uh, the pelt would help mask their scent. For those of you that are deer hunters, you realize that deer, their main form of defense is their sense of smell. So anything you can do to, to minimize your smell, you can actually get very close to them. And uh, so I thought that was kind of interesting and, and fun to picture. But let's talk about the different types of, uh, of driving and how that worked, Andrew. Yeah, so, you know, we, again, our Western mindset, we think of a deer drive like, all right, we've got some of our buddies over here, and they're going to go in and they're going to push the deer towards us, and there's a one in four chance that the deer might run by us and we can shoot them. Mm-hmm. But they made sure that the deer came to them. Is that right, Caleb? That's right. And it took a lot of work. They would build fences 
Yes, they would actually build uh, palace state fences and also uh, fell trees to mm-hmm. kind of help. And uh, this wasn't, you know, even like fit. We think of fifteen people going out and hunting. This could be like a whole your whole all the able bodied men. Yeah. yeah, and and maybe even people from neighboring clans are there helping you. You could have hundreds of people doing this, where you could do like five square miles of driving. Mm-hmm. So I think I think I read that these palisades picture picture a V basically. Yep. And they could be two mile, two, three miles long. Yep, so think of it as a V going at a right angle. And at the end, you've got a little opening. So it's like a funnel. And so in that little opening, you've got a little uh, pen on the inside. So they would start kind of like a swinging maneuver. They could start a fire on one side or have all the people standing just a, a little bit apart. And they start pushing. And the deer are going to run away from the people. So they start running away, and they run into a fence. Like, oh, can't go this way. It's blocked. And they just keep going down the line, going down the line. Actually, don't even think of it as a fence. Uh, They don't even think of it as them chasing the deer either. It wouldn't be practical to actually build uh, fences to keep whitetails out. For any of you that hunt them or see them, a whitetail can jump an eight-foot fence, no problem. Yeah. So, but these these palisades, they would sometimes, like I said, just be falling over trees and scrub and brush. So what they do is they'd very slowly drive them. They'd be walking behind them for a mile, just enough to kick them up and get them to go in that direction. That way, when they came to a small wall, it would just be more convenient for them to keep going and working their way down the funnel. But if you actually scared them, they would almost always leap over the palisades and escape. So you wanted to make them feel like they were just kind of walking away from an unknown predator until they got further and further down the funnel. And then they've got this tight area, and they just walk through. And then once they get inside, you stand at the entrance, and it's it's fit, shooting fish in a barrel. Yeah. A bad analogy, but that's what it was. You have them all corralled, and then you can harvest them in whatever area you see fit. Okay, Caleb, so you had a story you wanted to read, right? Yeah, I have a, a cool little uh, uh, writing here of a settler describing how an Iroquois um, deer drive looked. It says, The Iroquois tribe usually made their barricades with brush fence two to three miles long. They started the drive by setting fires to the woods at the ends of the corral. Parties of the braves patrolled the sides of the V to prevent most of the deer from leaping over it. The deer were eventually driven to the apex where the other hunters took them. Uh, So like you said, eventually it becomes shooting fish in a barrel once they come down to that point. Um, Also, you have Indians walking back and forth that mile trying to, you know, make noise or get your scent around to keep them inside that corral so they don't jump the fence. Yeah, so how many deer are we talking about, Caleb? We're talking about one, two, three. That's a great question, Andrew. And no, it wasn't one or two deer. If you think about it, uh, you have 300 people building this this palisade and coming out to do this drive. It was actually recorded where in the hunting season, the, the clan villages would almost be abandoned at this point because everybody, even the women, even though they weren't necessarily hunting, they would come along to help butcher and things like that. But Champlain noted in Montreal, when he watched uh, a Huron deer drive, that 120 deer were taken in one hunt. That kind of beats my record. 
by um, about 119. <laughs> uh, let's see here. Um, some deer were also taken with snares. Did you know that? they? Had- I read about that, yes. Now, people might not know what a snare is, Caleb. Can you describe it for sure. them? Sure. Uh, snares... We don't really use them in hunting too much these days. I think some places still do. But if, if you picture a rope, uh, there's a way where you can double loop it in such a way where an animal can walk through the loop, and as it goes through and pulls on it, it pulls tighter and tighter until the point where the harder the animal pulls on the loop, the tighter that it gets to the point where it suffocates the animal to death. Mm-hmm. There's a, um, a picture online you could find, and it shows a picture of a deer drive it shows the the V-shaped thing, but then around it, it shows other pictures of deer being hung up by the snares. And so it's a really cool portrait done. If you Google Champlain Deer Drive, you'll yeah, see we, it. We can post a couple pictures. on When we post our link on our Facebook, we can post a couple pictures of, of some of the deer drives, the early sketching, so that you guys can get an idea on what it looked like. Okay, so they harvested these deer. They, um, right, Caleb, they took all the meat and left everything and headed back to their village. Yeah, that, that may be the way uh, people these days do it. But no, they didn't want to waste anything. And they didn't have all the, the resources as far as technology that we had today. So they had uses for all the different parts of the deer. For example, their clothes were predominantly made out of whitetail leather and fur. And, you know, you think, okay, a deer is about the size of a human, so that's that's one deer for a set of clothing for one person. No, it's not. I think I read that it actually takes like five deer for one person. Uh, it could be a little less, a little more than that. But even out of the, the 120 deer they took that one day, it's still that's still not a lot of clothes in no. leather. And they had other uses too, like the bones could be used to, to carve for spears and fish hooks. and Needles and needles, other tools. All sorts of cool things. Now, now uh, do you know when these drives tended to take place, Andrew? Well, I would imagine that they took place in the fall because you don't want to go out and grab deer in the spring when they're all malnourished and have no meat on their bodies. That, that's exactly right. The, the does are all pregnant in early spring, and they've all gone the whole winter without having much to eat. And that takes basically every ounce of fat in their body to sustain the young fawns inside them. And they have barely anything to eat. They're, they're biting bark off trees at that point. Uh, so these deer drives were done just like how our hunting season is. They were done in the peak of fall, you know, October, November, when all the deer were at their fattest. Because we think of, of fat as being kind of a gross thing these days because we live in a country where we just have fat everywhere and we eat so much of it that it affects our health. health. But back then, fat was essential. You would take the deer fat and you could store it. It wouldn't rot like meat. You could store the fat and process it, add it to your your food later, use it for other things. So these all took place in fall. But that's not to say that you wouldn't hunt a deer in a different type of year. It was just the deer driving season tended to be that time of year when you're getting the large amounts of deer. You could still be an opportunist hunter and hunt deer throughout any other time of the year. If, you, if you're in the need of meat and you see a deer, you're, you're going to hunt it as a... Mm-hmm. You want to talk about when they actually harvested an animal, what they did, Caleb? Uh, yeah, that's a, that's a really good point. Because um, it's pretty central to their core beliefs. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
even though they were gathering these different animals and and even plants and inanimate objects, they looked at everything as if it had a spirit. Mm-hmm. Now they didn't see anything wrong with capturing a deer and and eating it and using it for substance, but at the same time they wanted to respect that that animal's spirit because it just died for you. Yes, it, you know they they looked at it as if it sacrificed itself. So they had certain ways that they would respect the animal even after they harvested it. And one of those was not to leave the rest of its body behind, to to be eaten by wild animals and to rot in the earth. So they actually believed that, say you shot a deer and you left its bones for the wild animals, they believed that the spirit would be angry at you for disrespecting it. Like, okay, you've already taken my life. I've given you my life and all my meat, and now you leave my body to be eaten by wild animals. So they would actually bury the bones and anything else that they didn't use out of respect for the animal. And they would also give a a thanks, saying thank you for sacrificing yourself, giving your life so that we may continue to live. It was a very polite and respectful way because they believed if they were not polite and respectful, the deer weren't going to allow themselves to be killed anymore. Mm Mm-hmm. And they believed that the spirits of the the animals that had died would tell the other spirits of the animals that were alive about it. Mm-hmm. And then the animals wouldn't let you hunt them anymore. Yep. Because you're, you're a bad egg. And there were certain animals that this was especially the case. Like, you know, they, they really tried hard to be respectful to their spirits. And that's the deer, the beaver, moose, porcupine, birds, and fish. And there's there's even a story where uh, somebody was visiting with the Oneida, I think it was, wasn't it, Andrew? Yeah, so he he had caught, I think it was a squirrel or something, and he was cleaning the animal, getting ready to skin it and the meat, and he was inside the longhouse. And they said, you can't do that in here. And he said, why not? He was about to throw the bones of it in the fire, is yeah. what he was going to do. And they said, the, the nets. And he's like, and he pointed to the fishing nets. He said, what about the nets? And they said... You can't do it in here. The nets are going to see you disrespecting the squirrel, and it's going to tell the fish. And the guy was like, what? <laughs> and they said, you got to go do that outside. And he could, you know, it sounded so foreign to him, but in their mind, inanimate uh, and yeah. animate objects, they talk. And if you're disrespecting that squirrel, those nets are going to tell those fish, and those fish are not going to let themselves be caught, and we're not going to catch any fish, and it's your fault. So get the squirrel outside. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so, uh, do you want to talk about uh, deadfalls or uh, and bear hunting and things like that? No, because you know more about it. Okay, I guess I'll talk about them. They, they had other ways of catching deer besides driving, and, and we talked a little bit about snares, but there were also deadfalls. And some of you may have seen these in movies on occasion, but basically what you do is you, is you take two sticks and you notch them in such a way that when they're standing perfectly straight and attached, they're sturdy like a tree. But then if any pressure comes to bending them, they give way because they're notched in such a way that they're together. So they would set these up and then they would set huge logs and rocks. We're talking like a ton of weight on top of this. And then put meat down inside the bars so if a bear or something else came through and pulled at the stick, it would fall and crush it instantly, killing it. Yeah, it's 
really cool story. And then also for hunting bears, they took other advantages because you are aware that bears in North America tend to hibernate. Yes, they do. And so if they knew that a bear was in a certain location, they could go in and... And harvest it during hibernating season. Yep. That way they're more docile. It would be a safer time to hunt a bear. Yeah. They weren't restricted to that, though. And in fact, they would also... Bears tend to climb trees sometimes to run away, right, Caleb? Yeah. And so if a bear they scared up into a tree, they could shoot arrows or throw javelins at it. And if they wounded it, it could fall out of the tree, and then it would die upon impact from hitting the ground. Also, another interesting thing is sometimes they would find cubs. They could kill the mother, and then they could have one or two bear cubs. Now, they're a lot less threat than a, a whole live bear, so they could capture it bring it back to their village, and they actually built cages for them, yeah, right? Yeah, we, we say that they had no domesticated livestock, but you could make the argument that that wasn't completely true because we do have records of, uh, of white settlers and trade people coming in and seeing these young black bears. And one of them said, hey, I'd like to buy one of those. And they said, no, no, we're raising it. What? what, what you're yeah. raising it? They would feed it and encourage it to grow, and then when it became a full-size adult and nice and fat... They would kill it, and then, you know, you'd have a bear meat. Yeah. You didn't have to go out and hunt it Just or like, drag it. <laughs> you know, I was thinking, uh, why, because I'm not sure if you're aware of this, but deer can be dom- domesticated like cows. There, there are deer farms where people will fence them in and grow them uh, just, just like they do cows or sheep. So I was thinking, why don't they do that? But the more I thought about it, why would you? Why would you invest all that time creating pens and feeding the deer when you can keep them out in the woods and not have to do anything with them and just get together once a year and harvest them all in the wild. Mm-hmm. So, and they were also building the habitat. We talked about burning off the underbrush and making the trees, and then they had the open cornfields. It was excellent habitat for deer mm-hmm. in that Also setting. moving their village. Every 15 years, if they move their village, that whole area that they cleared out would then become a deer great habitat. wildlife habitat. Mm-hmm. All right. Do you want to talk about trapping? You know, we talked about deadfalls, but they trapped animals also, not only for meat, but for fur, which is going to become a huge part of our story later on. Yes, this becomes one of the biggest parts of their economy. Before uh, the Europeans came over, uh, you know, their economy didn't work like, like ours. They didn't have money and things like that. But then all of a sudden, once you have these Europeans coming over and they have goods that you've never seen, all of a sudden you need to give them something in order to get what they have. And... The, the main thing that became the focus of their economy was furs, especially beaver furs, beaver yes. pelts. Because originally you could just trap a beaver and their fur, if you ever touch it, it is so soft and so nice. Um, and they would use it for hats or hand coverings or different things. If you could get a lot of them, you could make a whole winter coat out of it. But we talked about how many deer it took to make a suit out of deer skin let alone a beaver. Mm -hmm. So they started, once this thing kicks up, they're going to have to start traveling hundreds of miles to find enough beavers to satisfy the European markets. Yeah, when the Europeans first came over, they took back a couple beaver pelts, and then all of a sudden it became the fashion. Yes. Throughout all of Europe, especially Paris and and England. And and like Andrew said, it, it became to the point where the beavers were basically extinct in the whole Northeast. Yeah. And it wasn't until, I think, the 1900s they they started. DEC and other organizations were trying to bring them back in. Because and they're here now. They're here now. 
I saw some up in the Adirondacks a few weeks ago when I was up there. Or the person I know that got attacked by the rabid one. Oh, that's right. <laughs> anyway, side story. But they're here. Oh, come on. People want to hear the story about a rabid beaver attacking somebody. A person I know who, um, actually it's his father, and they were out kayaking on a Rondequoit Bay, and a, got... a, a beaver ripped him out of his kayak <laughs> and dragged him along the water, and his wife had to beat the beaver off with a paddle. Oh, I should have laughed, but it just sounds so funny to picture a beaver pulling somebody from a kayak. <laughs> it's sad because the beaver was rabid, so... He's okay, though, right? He, he's okay. It was a few years ago. And he doesn't have rebies. He does not, and I'm withholding his name out of respect. <laughs> but if you know who he is, you know what I'm talking about. Another uh, thing that made the beaver pelts uh, so coveted is you'll notice a lot of fur coats. If you rub them with your hand, uh, especially like fox and rabbit, the, fi- the fur fibers tend to come out. But beaver fur... It's soft, but it's also uh, thick and strong. And waterproof. And waterproof. And so it could really it could really hold together, and there was really no other substitute for it at the time as far as top-quality fur. If you wanted the best, you got beaver fur. Mm-hmm. You know, you got to remember this is a rodent that lives in the water, so it's, it's perfectly waterproof, and, and other furs you just didn't have the same quality. Not being said, they did get other furs from fox and raccoon and these different smaller animals that they did still use to keep themselves warm or trade because they were still novelties in Europe, mm-hmm. but not like the beaver. Yeah. What about buffalo, Caleb? Actually, uh, I don't have anything on buffalo. Well... I know they were here at one point. There but... were... Now, based on archaeological evidence, there were buffalo in western New York. Not like, as you're thinking, in the Great Plains, but there was actually a eastern woodland buffalo. It was a subspecies oh, of the really? American bison. So I it thought was they called, were the same. It was called a wood bison, and they did live... Uh, in western New York, and they believe that by the time of European contact, they were mainly gone from the area. But if you heard of Buffalo, New York, it's not called that because somebody thought, oh, I'd like to see a buffalo. There were actually still some in western New York around at the time, and so they were around. It was not a main part of their culture or diet, but they did on occasion find one and get one. So did they have any other kind of domesticated animals, Caleb? Yeah, we, we talked about how the bear they put in a pen and they'd seen that, you know, they were raising it for a couple of years to get it fat. That's kind of a, a little bit of a stretch, but yeah, I can see how that could be considered domesticated livestock. Uh, but the only, like, animal that they actually have listed that was truly domesticated was dogs. They actually, they had dogs here in America. They... uh they were a mixture, basically, of coyotes and wolves and, and a few other things. Actually, they, they believed for a long time, I actually read in a book, that uh, all the native breeds of dogs were gone because when the Europeans came over, they all interbred. But you read differently. Yes. Well, for one, the Chihuahua, the most famous Mexican dog, I guess, is a purebred North American dog. The, the Husky, Siberian Husky is also native to North America. And there's also some different... uh, There was the Carolina dog, which just recently they discovered in the Carolinas. They found a wild packs of dogs, and they did DNA testing and found out these are not from European descent. They were nearly pure DNA North American dogs. So I can post a picture of one, but it kind of looks like a lab with German shepherd ears and a long tail. Yeah, it it kind of looks like a a dingo. Yes, a a lot. And another name for it was the American dingo. So that makes sense. 
but they they did actually they did have these dogs as almost like pets where they lived in the village with them and they would give warning if invaders came through uh there's not a lot of information on if they used them in hunting uh i i read a few things that said that uh they believed that they did use them in certain hunting aspects there were some people that were making the argument that these were just watchdogs and they they weren't like pets like the way we think of them but at the same time we we see from some archaeological digging that uh dogs were actually buried with their masters so it it's tough to say if if it was actually because they they grew like that friend relationship like we have or maybe it could have been something more spiritual like for example we talked about in the clan system how the wolf what were known as the path keepers or the pathfinders uh, so who knows? It could have been something spiritual, like burying the dog or the wolf with you. You know, it would help your spirit find the right path in the afterlife, or something like that. And then you had the white dog ceremony, also. But yes. we're not going to get into that. But probably when we do an episode on spirituality and festivals, that'll come up. Yep. So, Caleb, are you ready to go fishing? Yes, I am. I'm ready to go fishing in a whole bunch of efficient ways. Okay, so we're going to get our reel and rod and our hook and our and, net and our worms. <laughs> and and yeah, they they mostly fished with worms and 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 hooks, right? I I guess not, based yeah. on the look you're giving me. <laughs> no, they had some pretty advanced techniques to really pack in the fish. We're not talking a bass every forty five minutes like we do. We're talking you can catch a bass in forty five minutes. <laughs> <laughs> Depends where you fish. But they had ways to catch thousands and thousands of pounds of fish. Some fish that even weighed up to 300 pounds apiece. It sounds like a dolphin. Yes, we're talking about the sturgeon for that fish, but also salmon and trout, rainbow trout, and pike and pickerel and walleye, all these you know, fish that they would catch. So I can uh, catch bluegills. Yeah, I can catch bluegills down behind Arby's on French fries on a hook. Uh, so let's get into that a little bit. So they're fishing a lot like their hunting uh, could take large amounts of people, almost the whole village in certain situations. They had all sorts of different techniques. They did have hooks. They did have nets, um, spears, or uh, what are spears also called? Uh, harpoons. Harpoons, that's it. Uh, fishing would be done year-round, but it was especially important in the spring. Uh, this is because large ocean and Great Lake fish would be traveling up the streams to spawn. Sturgeon and salmon and all the trouts swim up the spawn. Also, you have to remember, uh, all these huge fish, uh, they, they'd be basically unreachable when they were off in the lake. You'd have your, your hook and stuff, and you might be able to catch one salmon here and then. But the amount that they need, much like the deer, you've got to get 120 deer in one swoop. If you're going to make it worthwhile, 300 people coming out and uh, putting this much work in. <clears throat> you also have to remember that in the spring, this is when the deer are all starved for the winter. So it just doesn't make any sense to go out and, and start mass hunting them. So catching fish, if you can catch enough 50-pound fish, you can make up for deer. Also, fish are almost all meat. Now... They're going, you said, Caleb, they're pretty much deserting the village, so what are they doing? They're pretty much, they have to go build another base camp, right? 
Yeah, they have. Um, they would have fishing stations or hunting stations. We talked about it a couple episodes ago where your hunting land could be 100 miles away from your village where you leave for several months. Uh, fishing could be the same way. If, if, if you were a Seneca and you're living down by Canadagua Lake and you wanted to hunt on a river or fish up on a river coming you got to go up to Arundaquite yeah. Bay or to the Genesee River. Yeah, Genesee River, Arundaquite Bay, which would be at least 30 miles or you know, maybe further, depending on where you wanted to go on it. Um, so they would have these fishing stations. And the best way that they had for fishing was what we in the Western world known as fishing weirs. Do you know anything about those, Andrew? Weir sounds weird. Yes. So there there were two different types. If you look up fishing weir, a lot of times you'll find Algonquian or even different tribes further to the south, these huge long palisades. Um the Iroquois, they tended to use uh, stone, stone ones. And what these were, picture just like how we described uh, hunting the deer in the V-shaped palisades. They had the same concept, but in the water, where you would line stones if the water was relatively shallow where you could do it, and you're going to create this big funnel. Then at the end of the funnel, you could do... Two things. One was called a trap basket, where it would be a, basically a long woven basket, a long stick, something like six to ten feet long, that's a little wider on one end and goes down to a point where the water can run through. And you would put this right at the end of the fishing weir and, and catch the salmon and the other fish that came through. Another way you could do it is create basically a palisade box where you could stand up and just wait for all the fish to come get stuck in it, and then just start harpooning them as they come in. And then harpoon them, put them up in a basket, take it to shore, and just do that all day long. Okay, I have a cool explanation on what uh, Iroquois fishing weir looked like back then. Uh, It says here, At the falls of the river, where the water is shallow and the current is strong, the Indians used another kind of weir thus made. They made a dam of loose stones where there's plenty on hand, quite across the river, leaving one or two or more spaces or tunnels for the water to pass through, at the mouth of which they set a pot of reeds woven in the form of a cone, whose base is about three foot and perpendicular ten, into which the swiftness of the current carries the fish and wedges them fast so they cannot possibly return. So they would literally make these V-like structures just like in, in deer hunting out of either rocks or palisade uh, sticks inside the water and uh, funnel all the fish to it. Another thing they could do is once they had this built, they could have people go upstream and start splashing around and walking down the river making noise to scare all the fish down. In which case they could just uh, channel them in and spear them or get them into their their trap baskets and take them out. Yeah, so I also, when you think of a harpoon, not only was it just a, you know, you can't think of it just like a stick with a point. They would carve it or put bone in it in such a way that it was like a tripodded claw with uh, another one coming up the middle. And so you would harpoon it, and then these three claws would reach in and hold it in place so that you could pull it up and it wouldn't slide or slip off. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we'll we'll see if we can post some pictures of those too, so you guys have an idea. Because it's hard to kind of visualize without seeing it, because they're kind of a unique looking uh, looking spear thing. Mm-hmm. It's kind of neat. Now, 
Caleb, Benjamin Franklin said that fish are like guests. They stink after three days. I, I actually have that in my office, so I did know that. Oh, very good. So you've got all these fish that you've caught. What the heck are you going to do with them? <laughs> and like we said, these, some of these fish are huge. Uh, the sturgeon, I can't remember if I told you guys this, but the sturgeon migrating up, they would weigh 300 pounds. That's, that's picture a black bear. That's a fish the size of a black bear. So I don't think you're catching that in a little uh, basket trap. That, that you're probably doing a spear with a line on it and pulling them into shore. But Andrew's right. You have all this fish meat, which goes bad a lot faster than, than deer and other red meats. And you don't have a fridge. You don't have a fridge. They didn't use salt. So what do you do? What you do is you slice it up thin, and there were a couple ways to do it. If, if you had a nice bright sun on a hot day, you could dry them out on bark drying racks. Or you could smoke them, and they a lot of times they'd have a smoker house where where you could put all these trays next to it and slowly smoke them and dry them, and then you could store this meat for long periods of time. Now, was there anything else that they caught in the rivers? Oh, yeah. The shrieking eels. Well, I hear that the shrieking eels always screech loudest right before they're about to eat human flesh. That's true. Uh, but these were actually not shrieking eels. These were a different type of eel. Just regular run-of-the-mill. They, they were just run-of-the-mill eels. And uh, I've got a, a quote here from a Jesuit priest in the mid-1700s. Well, I'd love to hear it. He said that one man could spear a thousand in one night. End quote. That's a lot of eels. <laughs> yes, it is. <laughs> uh now, the, the men tended to do all, most of the fishing, but, but like we said, uh, with the hunting, the women would come along because once the fish are caught, this was something they both did. It wasn't the men are like, okay, I'll catch the fish, and then you can gut them and dry them. This was something that they would all do together, and it would be a lot of work. And it sounds, it just, to me, that sounds, <laughs> I've gutted fish. Bluegills, of course, mm. mainly. <laughs> but uh, they're smelly and slimy. And it's a lot of work. Mm-hmm. Man, I'm sure they tasted great, especially dried dried fish jerky. Yep. So they would time this out in such a way that, you know, they started doing this in the spring. And uh, basically, right in the time when the fish would start spawning and they would be catching them, they would be probably de- depleting their, their whitetail uh, food supply, food from, supply the from the winter before. So this would work as their protein replacement for the red meat up until the following deer season. Yeah, and you got to think, you've stored your vegetables from the winter, but you're probably out of your fresh vegetables. You're just dealing with corn and some dried beans now. There's probably not a lot of other stuff left. So this is a, this is a, a necessary thing. Okay, an Ontario Lake fishing station was excavated recently, and it was found that the fish gathered were basically spring and summer spawning species. And this really coincides with what we already said about them hunting the deer in the fall because they're at their fattest. It's spring now, so there's no point in getting the whole tribe together to go out and hunt deer. So now they're getting the whole tribe together and they're going up to the river and they're mass hunting salmon and, and these other fish. Uh, now, the fish, like we said, they'd be dried and processed on racks and smoked and things like that. But what they could also do is boil them 
and let the oil rise off the boiled fish and skim them and store them in gourds just like you would like nut oil. And you'd save that that uh, omega fish oil for uh, for your cooking and for other things. So they had other ways of fishing too besides fish weirs. They also had nets and they they did have hooks and they had harpoons for just spearing. Uh, so let's talk about their hemp nets. You know, how long have had they had the technology to to weave this hemp and make nets uh hemp net fragments were found in ontario and they were carbon dated from 6th century bc wait 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 wait. bc bc so they've been doing this a long time you know and and like uh like i said with the fish weirs they they've found uh old posts like as they've been doing uh subway digging in new york city and massachusetts and they've come across these ancient fish weirs from like three four five thousand years ago so they've had this technology a long time so they would weave these hemp these hemp nets and we're not talking like i always pictured like a butterfly net like making a little net like that to catch fish they would make some pretty big nets and these were all made by hand so you kind of picture you know, 30 women all making these nets together. And it really would take the whole village to chip in and make these things because it was just a ton of work. Now, one thing I know is that um, hemp tends to float or around and stuff like that. How did they get it so that they could get it to sink down? Yeah, to get if, the if you fish? just threw a huge long net in the river, it would just kind of ball up and, and go away. So what they would do is they could string gourds to the top of them or like pieces of wood that would float and then they would notch pebbles uh, around and tie them to the bottom of the net and this is actually the most found artifact people all the time to this day still walking up streams throughout new york and western new york especially you come across these these strange rocks that are notched around almost like a waist in the middle of them and they would they would do that and they put them on these nets and uh, i think dad has a whole bag of them like 50 of them that he got as a kid where he and uncle Cree were walking up the creek and found a whole bunch of them um so they would do that here's um here's an observation from the huron using nets in the winter it says that they would uh uh i think it was champlain he he noticed that they put these nets on long poles in the winter like up on Lake Ontario. And then, you know, these nets would be like 10 feet long and 10 feet wide. They'd stick them down, and then they would move the net underneath the ice to another spot and then pull it up and get the fish all underneath the ice. Wow. So, you know, it's kind of a neat idea. Now, what about nighttime fishing, Caleb? Oh, yeah, nighttime fishing, uh, where they'd use their glow-in-the-dark lures to catch the fish. Um, kind of. <laughs> By glow-in-the-dark, you mean lighting a torch and sitting in your canoe and attracting the fish. And yep. when you see them come up and they're staring at the light, it's so beautiful. And then you get a spear in your head. <laughs> yeah, fish, just like today, they're attracted to bright, shiny things. So they had a technique where they could go out with their torch in their birch bark canoe and stick it out over the boat. And then all the fish would come up to it, mesmerized by the light, and then you could harpoon them. So they were experts they knew the tricks and tools of the trade to survive um 
now to talk a little bit about the kind of the more the way we think of fishing today using like a line and a hook they would make hooks out of uh, fish bone or uh, bird bone normally that you know there were certain bones in the bird that were like uh, v-shaped so it'd be very easy to just sharpen a point on them and cut a little barb so that you've got a nice easy strong hook you wouldn't want to use stone it's too it cracks too easily Bone is flexible but yet firm, so bone worked very well for making fish hooks. Uh, also, at some point, um, excavators have found copper hooks. Did you know that? No. Copper, like metal. Yes, like metal. Like, I thought that these people were supposed to be in the Stone Age and not have metallurgy skills. Yeah, we're not talking all of them, but it has been found where there were some people that knew how to work copper, even back then, where they could... They they were finding it. I think it was Northern Michigan. Northern Michigan. There was natural veins of soft copper. Yeah, soft copper, and they would find it in the creeks and on the stream beds and things like that. And they they learned how to work it by hammering it with rocks to the point where you'd have shiny copper and you could ply it into different tools. They also used it for for trinkets and you know uh, because it would be really shiny when it was fresh and newly made. So um. That's pretty much everything, right, Caleb? Well, that's basically uh, in a very abridged version. Uh, I had a lot of trouble researching this. Did you? Yeah, it's really amazing how little information there is out there in books. I mean, I read a book that covered specifically corn in agriculture, and it was 120 pages. But they did not get in. I could not find anything about hunting and fishing. Yeah, I or... had to go to about 40 different sources and also, I had to to go and look at a lot of, uh, not necessarily Five Nations, but Ara- other Arakoin countries like the Huron, readings from the the Jesuits and things like that to kind of get an idea for references for this. Because you go you go online or read in the books, and it just gives you a very broad statement like they hunted deers with using palisade walls. Okay. Thank you. That didn't really help us much. So no. So unfortunately, it seems like a lot of this has been lost to history. Because people just don't do it in this manner anymore. And also, um, it just wasn't written down. So we just get firsthand accounts from these obscure people that are writing in their journals. And so you really got to dig into it. So that's why I'm kind of pleased that we're doing this show. Because we're learning a lot. And we get to bring back and revitalize a part of culture of of the Haudenosaunee that has been lost. Yeah, I'm having a lot of fun so far. And I hope all you listeners are. Um we are going to be, what are we doing next week? Well, we're going to start transitioning, and we're still going to do some special episodes on different aspects of their culture. We've got a lot of things we want to check off the list, probably on technology, building longhouses, canoes, uh, festivals, things like that. But we want to get into the narrative as well. Yeah, we want to start getting into the history. Um, so next week, I think we're going to do an episode on pre- prehistory, pre-contact, prehistory. Yes, um, up until the first contact with European travelers. And that is going to be a summary as well, because just because we say prehistory doesn't mean there isn't history. It just means from an academic standpoint, there's no written records. Mm-hmm. But we still have legends and oral tales and archaeological evidence yeah, as well. Yeah, that's where we're going to get a lot of our resources are, are from, um, you know, digs where they can basically carbonate things. And th- that's that's actually how we got a lot of the stuff on how they... they they hunted and things like that based on the digging uh, of their their old uh, 
tribal villages and things like that, there we were able to see, okay, how you know, what did they use these bones for from fragments and things like that? Because sadly, like you said, there's not a lot written on it. Yep. So starting next week, we're gonna start getting into history. It'll be a lot of fun. We're gonna work our way up. I'm really looking forward to getting to like the Beaver Wars and eventually the Revolution. But there's a lot of stuff in between. We're looking at about 400 years of history we're going to cover. When Caleb and I first started, I sat down and made a list of episodes that we wanted to do, and I got it to about 40. Now um, we're going to be about four or five episodes in, and I've got the list up to 50 episodes. So we hope to be here for the long haul because we want to do a good job. We want to be able to show and give you a good, broad picture of the culture, the history of what happened, and realize that this is a part of our culture and history, too. We, we live here, and maybe we don't have Native American history, all of us, but we need to understand the people that made this land for us and appreciate what they did. Mm -hmm. So I hope you guys will continue to join us in our journey. We'll be back next week. and yep. As usual, if you have any questions, you can email us at Longhouse History Podcast. Um, be sure to check in, like us on Facebook. We try to post things throughout the week, and we'll try to upload some pictures and maps as well. So thank you so much, people, and until then, goodbye. Bye, everybody.